So we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and now we've been talking about the issue of, of marriage. And so real quick before we jump in, I want to uh, kind of ask a little bit of the same question that we asked last week. And uh, I think it's a pertinent question because in a lot of ways, um, we have a church that is, for the most part, probably 75 to 80%, especially when uh, students come back, um, kind of of millennial descent, if you want to call it that, between 18 ages 18 to 35, which means that the majority of our church overwhelmingly is non-married. And so the question naturally could be asked, why in the world would you want to teach on a subject of marriage if it's totally irrelevant to the main population within that community? And I have three answers for that. First, answer to that question, why, is first and foremost, as they're finding the site, is uh, it's in the Bible. It's just simply in the Bible. And as we go through passages in the Bible and books in the Bible, we're forced to take a look at those passages no matter what. And uh, it's easy for us. It's one of the reasons why I think as we read the Bible, it's good to just go through sort of a systematic reading of it. And it forces us to let the text speak to us, even though it may be unpopular. And so uh, the flip side of that is that we read the Bible based upon um, picking and choosing or selecting or editing what really kind of speaks to us. But the danger of that is we omit things that challenge us. We omit things that we assume are not relevant to our lives. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a bad pattern because if in reality, if God's word is God's word and it does inform, it does challenge, it does change us, it helps us. If it is indeed wisdom, then we need as much wisdom as we can get. A- amen? You guys agree with that? So if it's there in the Bible, nobody responded to that just by the way. So um, maybe, okay, both of you did. Um, in the future, if you guys feel led to say amen, like that's okay. We, we, we can get a little Pentecostal, so that's no problem. Um, but it's in the Bible. So our first reason why we study this, because it's there in the Bible, we've got we to gotta take a look at it. second reason is most singles, most singles, I, I've discovered this, are actually mastered by one of two equally dangerous extremes. One, they're either mastered by an over-desire to get married, or they're mastered by an over-fear of getting married. So the first of which is that if they're mastered by an over-desire to get married, then what happens is um, you're never really satisfied. Your life is never really satisfied with joy. You never really find the completion of your life because in reality, you're, you're, you're assuming that life is going to be complete the moment you find you know, Mr. Right or Mrs. Right or whoever that is. And until you have that, your life is actually just a series of bummers. And you, it ne- actually never allows you, it disallows you actually to, actually to enter into the joy of others that end up getting married. Um, you can never really be satisfied with that. In fact, you're always frustrated. You're always upset because all of your friends are the ones that are getting rocks in their fingers, but you're not. So you're, you're always jealous. You're always frustrated, always upset. And what oftentimes can happen is the moment you end up getting married, you're never really satisfied because you begin to find out that your spouse has all this, you know, baggage that you never really anticipated being brought into or imported in the relationship, and now you're really frustrated because you thought they were going to fix you, and they were there to fix you. In fact, they may have even wounded you, and now you're really frustrated, and that is because you have an over-desire to be married. In other words, the Bible language of that is it's become an idol to you. You idolize it. You've placed it into the level where it will give you life if you have it. That, by the way, is reserved only for God. <laughs> God is the one that gives you life if you have him. Um, nothing else does. So, Or you have this excessive fear of marriage, meaning uh, you've seen people, maybe your parents went through divorce, and so you've 
have this like excessive fear where you don't want to talk about marriage. The thought of actually committing yourself is like uh, the worst sin or crime that you can commit. And so you might engage in certain relationships to some level, but at some point it kind of like bottoms out. It expires and you kind of find yourself going into relationships. You might be in it for like four to six months or maybe nine months if you're lucky, or maybe if you're really, really lucky, it's like a year, and that's mainly because they're off in another country for like eight of those months, um, and, and you're really only dialoguing via Skype. Um, and, but then once they get back, at some point that relationship stops. It's because you have a fear of commitment, because you're afraid of getting into this thing called marriage, because you've seen the devastating effects that it's had upon your mom or dad or someone else that you've known really close to you. And this is one of our greatest fears as well. It's you know, not just simply afraid of watching bad, marriage or, you know, bad relationships end up in a bad marriage. Um, sometimes you know, we can see friends that we know uh, heading down a path of marriage and in the back of our mind, you know, nobody wishes this, of course, but you know, we can sometimes pick out certain people and we're like, oh my gosh, they are, they're bad for each other and that relationship's not going to last too long. So, you know, you know, three years into it, when it doesn't uh, begin to work out and they're, you know, killing each other, um, we can be like, oh, I, I guess that, I, you know, I called that. Um, but what really devastates us is when we see potentially what looks like good marriages go sideways. That's frightening. You, you understand that? That's frightening. I mean, I, I can give you an example of for my wife and I, there was a, uh, a good couple that we had known as young Christians. I mean, I think we might have been like 18, 19 years old, and uh, we were kind of hanging out with each other back in that day, and we were, we were considering contemplating marriage. And my parents divorced, and uh, this was a couple that was sort of like adopted me as a spiritual son and really looked up to them. And uh, their marriage completely one day, you know, kind of find out. Uh, I remember my wife and I actually showed up at their house. It was right after hanging out and going to the beach. And uh, we come to find out, like, oh, yeah, they're getting divorced. And I just still remember that bottomed-out feeling of, like, are you, are you kidding? Like, I, they were the perfect. I mean, they were so, like, pristine. They were even, like, on James Dobson's show. Like, they were like, here's an amazing marriage, you know, Mr. and Mrs. blah, 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 you know. And to come to find out that they weren't everything I thought um, just set me back um, really far into kind of that perpetuated that fear of marriage. And uh, so anyways, uh, the final one is divorced people. Uh, divorced people oftentimes have a very distorted view or perspective of marriage. And oftentimes this has come through um, being forged by way of being involved in a bad marriage. In other words, it has gone really sideways. Uh, you are tender, you're vulnerable, you're weak, you're wounded, you're hurt. And that has sort of maybe misshaped the way that you've understood what marriage is all about. And so therefore, uh, there's a tendency to either you know, run back into another marriage, uh, maybe hoping that again, because you have such a great perspective of it, uh, hoping that well, maybe the next one is going to help you out. But then three, four, five years... Uh, marriages down the road, you begin to realize something's not right, or uh, you have such a distorted view that the thought of ever getting back into marriage is, is something you never will do. And what I'm saying is that the Bible actually describes marriage as being a gift from God. It's a good thing. And if it's done right, if it's done according to the way that God describes and the way uh, Paul kind of lays out here, I, I think what will happen is you will actually find life and flourishing being the byproduct. It will be what God has intended uh, it doesn't mean that everything's always going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that, you know, one day you wake up laying next to, like, this perfect individual that uh, everybody's just eternally blissful. But the fact of the matter is, is that you, if you understand the way God uh, describes marriage and impacts it for us, what happens is that you will find that you will have in your toolbox the ability to 
bring self-repair when repair needs to take place. Now, you will be equipped with what is needed to bring about life and flourishing within that particular relationship. And ultimately, it will be something that will point to um, even a greater relationship. And that kind of leads to, I'm going to read uh, the passage that we'll be taking a look at, and then um, we'll jump right in. So the passage that we'll read is in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. We'll actually pick it up at verse 21, and then uh, right there in the slide it says verse 22, um, and then we'll go to the end of the chapter. And let me read it to you. Here's what it says. Verse 21 starts off like this. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is in himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that, let, uh, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holding without blemish. In the way, in the same way, husbands, you should love, uh, should they should love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. And no one ever has hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of the body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery. It's profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let his wife see that she respects her husband. So I want to start off by basically saying something. Next slide is um, marriage is penultimate. In other words, human marriage is penultimate, um, and it's not ultimate. Let me, let me, the word penultimate basically means it comes alongside of and supports that which is ultimate. Um, We talk about like ultimate things or subordinate things or penultimate things. You're talking about something that comes alongside. It is not the ultimate thing. Now, in a sense, in human relationships, marriage is perhaps the ultimate type of engagement or relationship that you can actually have. I mean, you know, there's like... Um, where you call, you know, puppy love, and then you're kind of like hanging out with each other, and you're like just friends, and you're like more than just friends. You know, so there's like different levels of intensity in which that relationship may go through. And then ultimately, for the most part, we tend to thinking it will end up in like a marriage. Nobody ever really looks at it and says, uh, we're going to end up in an eternal state of friends with benefits. It just doesn't work that way. At some point, that breaks down. At some point, because there's no fidelity, there's no, no commitment there. That type of posture basically leads to a constant recycling of sex partners and never really to its ultimate sense of fidelity and commitment and monogamy and relationship to one another. So in a sense, in a human level, marriage is ultimate. But we're not just simply talking about human level here because what Paul is saying is that God is up to something. God is doing something. And what Paul has been telling us all along throughout the book of Ephesians is that God has a plan, that God is renewing all things. God is restoring this world, which has been broken, which has been defined by sin, which has been defiled by sin. So if you look at your life and you realize there are things in your past, in your life, that have, been, that have broken you, that have contributed to your 
fragileness that have caused you to cower and be ashamed of who you are sometimes or ashamed of your past or afraid to bring your past into a particular relationship because you're always afraid that if they know everything about me, maybe they won't really stick around. They'll flee. They'll find another relationship to be involved in or invested in. And so really the idea here is that the reason why I can say that marriage is penultimate, not ultimate, is really actually Paul's statement. That's what Paul is saying. So, uh, again, these are really not my words. These are Paul's words, even though Paul doesn't use phrases like penultimate. Um, What Paul does say, though, is that marriage is uh, is a pointer. It points to something. Here's what Paul says. Uh, We had already read this verse, but I want to read it again because I think in a lot of ways it sort of defines and sets the course for what we're going to talk about over the next few minutes. So, verse 31, again, Paul says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, sort of this transition where Paul then says, this mystery is profound. But what I'm saying that is, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what Paul just finished saying is I'm talking about marriage. I'm talking about man, you know, uh, uh, submitting himself to the actions of Christ and to the character of Christ and to the uh, the, the, the commitment of Christ, and I'm asking uh, for the woman to submit herself to the husband that is committed to loving his wife the way Christ loved the church. And, and but, but Paul pauses and stops and says, but really, what I'm really saying is all of that is a great mystery because it, what I'm really talking about, the story underneath the story, the, the, you know, the, the, the real music that's playing behind everything else is this ultimate story, this ultimate marriage of Christ and his marriage to the church. That's what Paul's saying. So in other words, at the end of the day, marriage, in its ultimate sense, is Christ, God, at work in this universe, taking that which is going sideways, that which is going outward or away or broken or divorced, if you would, or is worthy of being cast off and divorced or removed from, and God says, I'm bringing it back in relationship, bringing it back into reorder, bringing it back into new creation. So that life will one day be what characterizes the landscape of our lives that are now perhaps currently identified or defined by drought and brokenness and hurt and pain. Maybe that might be some of your lives. Maybe if you look at your life and you look at the landscape of your life and you wonder, maybe that's me. Like, your life has been defined by brokenness and pain and bitterness and hurt and shame and defilement and all of these things that you are afraid of. You're you're concerned that if someday somebody finds this out about you, they will actually abandon you. But what Paul is saying is that what God is up to right now, right this instant, is he's bringing back to himself those that are broken, bruised, in rebellion, in sin, defined by defilement and brokenness, and he's bringing them to himself. This is what Paul says is this profound mystery, this marriage of all marriages that's happening right now. And he's inviting you to it. He's inviting you to be part of this this new body that's being washed and made cleansed. And so therefore, Paul says marriage is actually, in human sense, penultimate, meaning it if done right, points to, as a sign, to the ultimate marriage. So this is what I wrote. The penultimate purpose of marriage is to act as a sign which points to the ultimate 
faithful marriage, where God's faithful, a union of God to people who were redeemed from rebellion and death into this new community we call the church. This is what God is up to. So let me give you an illustration. Um, um, yeah, I've lived here about 21 years. It's not very often do I end up kind of driving down on Pismo Beach, but last week I actually had a chance because there's some good swell. I actually drove down on Pismo Beach and heard there's some sandbars on there, so I drove along the beach, paid my five bucks to go bring my surfboard and kind of get all sandy and go find some good surf. And so imagine if today we found out that there was good swell, and so those of you that surf, you grab your surfboards and you throw it in the car, and you're going to go surf, but some of you who don't surf, maybe you're just like, uh, support, good support roles to surfers is, is next best thing is bring a camera and you can take good photos of us. Um, and so, or you can bring your bodyboard, or if you are like really into this type of stuff, you can bring your, you know, your, your motorcycle. And so we're going to pack up and we're going to go to Pismo beach. And so as we're driving down 101, we pass shell beach, we get to the area just past shell beach. And there's a sign that says Pismo. So, so if in this crazy, ridiculous, illustration, we stop right there on the freeway, get off right there underneath the sign, unpack everything, lay out the towels, take out the sandwiches, take out the surfboards, take out the bodyboards, take out the cameras, take out the motorcycles, and right there on the side of the freeway underneath the sign of, says, Pismo, begin to act as if we're at the beach. People would think we're nuts, because we are, because the reality is we are celebrating acting as if we're at the beach, but in reality, we're at the sign that points to the beach. So the fact of the matter is, is that if you look at marriage as being the ultimate thing, if you make marriage, which is supposed to be penultimate, it supports the ultimate marriage, the ultimate thing, then at some point it will let you down, you will fail, uh, or you will find yourself in a place of failure, and you will find yourself broken and hurt because you are trying to find life out of something that was not intended to be an ultimate source of life in and of itself. It was to point forth to the ultimate source of life. Does this, does this all make sense, guys? You're following so long, so far? So this is what Paul is trying to say. So with that being said, we need to really kind of understand a little bit about what this is about. And Paul actually describes this as a great mystery. I love this in the Greek. The actual Greek phrase that Paul uses here is two words, mega and then mystery, mysterion. Mega, mysterion. Isn't that a great word? Mega, mysterion. What Paul is saying is that this thing called marriage is actually this great, profound mystery that's being revealed. Now, we think of mystery as being something that's we have no clue what it is, and therefore we need to like find clues, and we need someone who's smart enough to kind of put those clues together, like you know Monk or Sherlock Holmes, and try to figure out, to, to uncover, to solve for us this great mystery. But that's not at all what Paul is saying. A great mystery is something that was once hidden, now it's revealed. Now we see it. And what Paul is saying is the reason why we see this so profoundly clear is because of Christ. And what God has done at work in Christ to take broken people, abandoned, and no longer keep them abandoned, but to welcome them in. So profound is that, that Paul says it's like he marries himself to these people, commits himself to these people. And how profound that is, is because these are people. They're not gods. In other words, they are other. And God takes these other people that are nothing like him, that don't act like him, that don't think like him, that don't treat others the way he treats them, and he unites himself in an act of profound love. And it's not just simply God sharing his 
sentiment over us. It's God acting out his love in the most radically profound way of dying on the cross. This is what we see God is at work and doing within this world. So with that being said, there's basically two points that I just want to kind of unpack for you guys in looking at this this morning. Um, the two points in terms of like what is marriage and what marriage is all about, I think involves two specific things. So this, in a sense, is kind of a two-part sermon. And so some of you are kind of excited because you might think the sermon is actually this. But in reality, I have a whole lot of sub-points under those two main points. So um, I'm going to try to get through these as fast and as quickly as I can. Obviously, i got a lot of ground to cover, so... Um, you know, you can always get the message later on uh, our website if you can't keep up. But just listen carefully. So the first two things that we'll basically take a look at, the, first, uh, the two ones are, one, uh, involves partnership. Partnership, we'll unpack that. The second is procreation. Those are the two things I think that we can extrapolate from the Scripture that God is saying, this is what marriage is. This is what uh, the penultimate purposes of marriage are. It's uh, partnership and procreation. Those are the two things that really, if you understand kind of the nitty-gritty of what Paul is saying and defining, begin to take place. Now, let me say real quick as well. When Paul begins to unpack for us what marriage is, Paul is not pulling the concept of marriage out of thin air. Paul actually has an understanding and a perspective of marriage that taps into his Hebraic roots, meaning Paul was a Jew. Paul is Hebrew. Paul understood the Bible, meaning the Old Testament. And Paul realized that there was a storyline begun about marriage in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. And Paul actually quotes from that passage in Genesis, as well as a couple other passages that Paul quotes from from the Old Testament. So in other words, when we talk about Paul talking about marriage, and by the way, we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, that this is actually the longest passage in the Bible that addresses uh, marriage. Um, And what Paul does is as he begins to unpack marriage, uh, he's not just pulling concepts and ideas out of thin air, nor is he importing them from culture. Paul is actually borrowing them from the Old Testament, the Old Testament picture of what marriage is and how God defined it. But what he's doing is he's bringing it into light of who Christ is. And that's why Paul can say this was a, a great mystery, because in reality, what all marriage is, it's a sign that points to this great marriage that God is bringing about throughout the cosmos, uh, throughout fallen, broken humanity, in that through Jesus, that he's calling people to enter into covenant relationship, whereby they will be made clean, and they will be committed to by God out of great love, but great cost to himself, but totally free to those that would listen and obey and respond and repent and turn to this God. So with that being said, let's jump in real quickly. We'll take a look at partnership that involves partnership. So what is partnership? So I think there's at least three things that we can take a look at. One, partnership involves covenant between, keyword, others. Covenant between others. Let me give you an example. So we've got to go back to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Or, uh, why don't you go back there real quick? In fact, we'll just take a look at chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. This is covenant between others. God creates mankind. Uh, we're told that throughout all the creation, then God creates man, and then God creates man, and man's uh, given a task. His unique task is to basically name all the animals, if you're familiar at all with uh, one of my favorite singers, uh, Bob Dylan. You know that man gave names to all the animals in the beginning, in the beginning, a long time ago. Want me to sing the whole song to you guys? I won't. Um, and so Adam is giving names to the animals, and then at some point he begins to realize that 
that there is no animal, even as he's giving names to the animals, he realizes that they're, they're two by two. You know, every animal has its counterpart. Every snake has its, you know, counterpart female snake. Every male snake has a counterpart female snake. Every, you know, uh, male squirrel has a, has a female counterpart squirrel. Every, uh, every animal, and he's, and he's naming all these things, and he begins to realize there is no counterpart for me. There is no helpmate that's fit for me, and God says, that, that's not good. And so then God does something to create from Adam his counterpart. In verse 20, it says this, uh, then man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And Adam there, and, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God uh, had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her into the man. Then he said, and then the man said, it's Adam. So a lot of scholars believe that this is actually sort of a song. Like Adam actually sings to his bride. It says this, this is uh, at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She was called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And man and his wife were both naked and were not, and, and were not ashamed. So the picture is, again, Paul actually quotes from this particular passage in the book of Genesis. So again, if we are familiar with the passage that we read in Ephesians chapter 5, you would have noticed that Paul would have already uh, alluded to that. And that was Paul's way of saying, I'm not making this up. I'm, I'm anchored in what Scripture has to say to us about what marriage is. And what Paul is alluding to is really this profound event in which God created out of Adam, literally, his other. God takes out of Adam somebody that is not exactly identical to Adam. She is quite literally in every respect his other. And therefore she brings, God brings to Adam, male, his counterpart, female. And the two of them become one flesh. And Adam sings this beautiful praise song to her. And obviously Eve responds because every woman loves a rock star. And so uh, we have really kind of the picture of the first marriage here in the Bible. And so what happens is we see them actually covenanting themselves to one another, giving themselves to one another, even though in spite of the fact they are completely other, different, distinct. This is kind of obviously in some ways a no-brainer. Oftentimes people say, you know, uh, opposites attract and so on and so forth. But the reality is this is the point. This is, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I look at my wife and I realize that Sherry is completely different than me in so many ways totally different than me. I mean, um, if, if it was just me in the relationship, we would literally, I, you know, I say we because really that's, that's a wrong choice of word, but I would just simply lead my life into a place of, of brokenness and despair because I'm not as uh, careful to pay attention to details. My wife, on the other hand, is very detail-oriented. She completes me. Like, we complete each other. And on the same side, I'm there to help my wife fan into her certain things that maybe she has deficits with regard to. And we complete each other. We work towards each other. And yet the idea is that we covenanted between each other. And so what love looks like, the idea is a covenant for love. Now, I'm going to do, I actually have a wedding this afternoon. I'm going to be heading out kind of right after second service because I got to home and get ready for this thing. But the point of the matter is, is that one of the things in every single wedding that you ever go to, for the most part, it's not simply two couples standing together and communicating, confessing their present love with each other. It's not that they sit there and be like, I love you so much and, 
you're so awesome, and you're the most amazing person in the world. They may say that, but in reality, it's not a vow. That may just be a declaration. But a vow is when two people say to each other, uh, it's a confession that, you know, 30 years from now, I'm going to still love you. That's a vow. A vow is a declaration. It's a covenant of future love. It's a way of uh, projecting into the future, looking way beyond the here and now, way beyond the, the, you know, delving into each other's lives. Because the fact of the matter is, I mean, you can know somebody for, you know, a couple years, several years, seven years, ten years. People change. New things kind of come up within their lives, and you begin to discover new things. So what's going to happen if, as they change in life, you know, ten years, fifteen years in the marriage... That's one of the reasons why oftentimes I think vows become very cheap or very, you know, broken is because what happens is as people begin to divulge new information, the vow becomes thin, becomes weak. But really what marriage is, it's a vow, it's a covenant that says, in spite of everything, I will covenant myself to you till death do us part. And it's a commitment to say, I will love you forever, for always. And love, Paul, again, the idea of love, it needs to be unpacked because we tend to think of love in terms of sentimentality or we tend to think of a covenant or we tend to think of chemistry instead of covenant. So we oftentimes have uh, the wrong forms of things that we look for in terms of relationships going into it. So we tend to kind of look for like what makes chemistry? Do I click with this person? Do I feel sexually attracted to this person? And if I do, then that may make a good partner for me in the future. Sometimes the fact of the matter is, that's the worst thing to look for, is just sexual chemistry. Because what can oftentimes happen is you can get involved into a marriage, and then you may find yourself being sexually or chemistry, chem, chemically, if that's the way we look at it, attracted to other people in the future. But that's no reason to break a vow and go, you know, you, you figure out ways to get rid of that or to overcome that with Stronger affections and emotions. But the point of the matter is, is what we see here is that love, the way Paul describes it, is its covenant. And it's love that demonstrates its forth, de- demonstrates its way forth in a woman submitting to a husband. And again, I'm not going to pack this. I did all this last week, so it would be best for you guys to check out the messages um, that we did last week. Um, and ultimately, uh, one of the things that we did mention is that even though a lot of ways that verse or this portion of passages has been basically hijacked by a lot of male chauvinist dudes um, that love to take Bible verses and abuse them. Uh, Oftentimes what has happened is men have taken this passage and have placed the majority of weight upon a woman's shoulder saying, your job is to submit to me. When in reality, the true weight of the passage is upon the man's shoulders. Because even though a woman is being called to submit to her husband, the husband is being called to submit himself Really, if you think of it this way, to Christ's example, which is to love his spouse, which is to cleanse his spouse, which is to cover, which is to cultivate her. So in other words, if, uh, you know, a, a marital spat kind of ensues where you have them kind of fighting over, you know, like, uh, let's say, you know, what type of car we should get. At the end of the day, if a man is like, well, you know, look, you're supposed to submit to me and therefore given to me kind of the idea. She can turn around and say, well, yeah, but the Bible says you're to cultivate the relationship with me and do everything in a sacrificial way to me. So it's kind of like checkmate. But the fact of the matter is if a man is basically saying, you know, you're supposed to submit to me, that the woman is really able to come back and say everything that you do in your life is to 
be done with an aim to cultivate and nurture and build up. In other words, in a selfless fashion, to bless me. And that's really what Paul is saying, is that that is the image that he has in mind. It's a covenant to love one another forever until death do us part with that type of covenantal love. Second thing we see is that it involves friendship. Friendship. So partnership not only involves covenant between others, two distinct people, uh, maleness and feminineness, if you think of it that way. Otherness is what Paul is describing. The second way to think about this is that it involves friendship. Uh, Tim Keller, pastor, mentioned last week. He's a pastor in New, uh, New York City. He wrote a great book on this, which we mentioned last week. Um, uh, it's a lot of great things to say about this. He describes friendship like this. Friendship involves both consistency and transparency. The book of Proverbs describes friendship as being friends love at all times. And the idea is there, it doesn't ebb and flow. Uh, you know, we kind of have a term for it. We call people that kind of flow or leave out of our lives as being fair-weathered friends, meaning they are there uh, as long as there's something I can give them back in return. I can give them friendship. I can give them money. I can give them a place to stay. But if something as if that, like that changes or, or uh, stops happening, then they leave. It's one of the reasons why a lot of times marriages that are not built first and foremost on friendship fall apart. It's one of the reasons why if we build our marriages as the foundation, the foundations that we start looking for, the little stones that we think that we're going to, okay, well, I'm going to build a future relationship on. I'm going to build a future relationship on looks. What you're doing is you're actually building your relationship on things that at some point will expire. Friendship, if it's genuine friendship, will actually become more robust. It'll be like a fine wine. It will, it will become better with age. Whereas with looks, at some point, you know, it, it reaches a maximum, and then you start going downhill from there, right? You start bulging in areas where you shouldn't be bulging. Dudes start growing hair in areas where they should never grow hair. It becomes pretty messy at some point. So if you build your life on looks, at some point, they'll go sideways. And when they go sideways, it's one of the reasons why oftentimes the Marriage stops. You fall out of love. The friendship stops because never, in other words, it was never really built on real love. It was really only built on perishable things that fade with time. But friendship is one of those things that really continues to build upon itself and begins to bring about a sense of flourishing. I'll give you an example. When I first met my wife, I was probably around 16 years old or so, something like that. We became good friends. And so when I found myself kind of uh, you know, questioning and wondering, you know, should this relationship go a little bit further, uh, really kind of taking the next step into actually getting married, one of the number one things that I kept going back to in my mind is uh, how good of a friend am I with her? And I began to, you know, obviously it was, I had irrefutable evidence to prove the fact of the matter is I had a really good friendship with my wife. We enjoyed each other. Um, her mom um, was just an amazing lady. She would always, you know, she, she was, I mean, I look back now and I realize she was, she was really good at kind of like, like keeping me there, like she'd always make sure that the refrigerator was stocked with lots of food, and you know, so I, you know, I grew up in Huntington Beach, so I'd always go surf, and she'd be like, just come over, you know, and like that was her ploy to just like keep me in the house, and and you know, when Sherry comes home, we kind of hang out, and you know, uh, and everything's kind of in this supervised form and all that, and so she was a really wise woman, so um, now we're taking some of her cues and tips and stuff like that now that we got two teenage daughters, but the point of the matter is besides the point, the reality is that Sherry and I had really good friendship, and friendship is what you can build upon. And so as I look at my relationship with my wife today, I realize one of the things that we have more than anything is friendship. Oftentimes what we do is we look at, first and foremost, 
is there sexual desire there? So what we typically do is we, when we start looking for relationships, we put sexual desire at the forefront. It's one of the reasons why any guy or any girl can walk into any room, any party, anywhere where there's a group of people, and there may be 10 potential women there, and within an instant, a guy or girl can size up those 10 men or 10 women and reduce that, you know, that, that menu of options down to three in an instant based upon you know, waist size, based upon bicep size, based upon facial, you know, looking at something that is pleasing to them. And what will happen within an instant, everything is basically built upon chemistry. And relationships that are nothing more than chemistry, they basically build upon something that is very dysfunctional. And at some point, the chemistry won't be there. And when the chemistry is not there, oftentimes people are left with wondering, well, maybe, uh, maybe it's time for a new chemistry. And that right there, FYI, is the recipe of infidelity. It's as simple as that. Whereas if the relationship was built upon good friendship, I'll just give a side note. And some of this, I realize that, you know, we get some young kids in here and maybe a little bit more PG-13-ish. But the reality is, is good friendship leads to good sexual relationship. And good sexual relationship leads to good friendship. And this is the way that God has ordained it. This is the way it works itself out. And this is one of the reasons why it's important to understand the idea of friendship. So constancy as well as transparency. The idea of basically being open to sharing your heart, bearing your life with another person. That's one of our greatest fears, though. It's one of the reasons why oftentimes we keep relationships very shallow. I think, personally, it's one of the reasons why things like social media are so popular in today's world. Social media provides kind of a unique way for us to be semi-known in an edited form. Meaning, we have people that can know stuff about us, but the stuff that they know about us is stuff that we choose for them to know about. So we tell them, you know, I went to the movies, or I hung out with these types of people. But it doesn't tell the whole story. It doesn't tell them the thoughts that we've been thinking. It doesn't tell them the the. the bad stuff that's going on in our life behind the scenes, and we live in sort of this delusion because really at the end of the day, there's, we're, we're controlled by a sense of fear that if my whole life becomes transparent from somebody, then they will see things about me that are not desirable, that are actually offensive and hurtful, and they will abandon me just like everybody else has abandoned me. And that's our greatest fear. It's our greatest fear. So friendship involves really not only constancy and transparency, but also three other things. Real quickly, I'll go through these. One, time. One, time. You've got to make time for relationships. Two, it involves talk. You've got to talk. You've got to talk. You've got to be able to communicate, really truly communicate, and get to know how each other communicates. Thirdly, it involves touch, being able to be involved in each other's lives in a tangible way fashion. And really, when you think about it, all three of these are things in which Jesus does with us. Jesus is constant, or all five of them, actually. Jesus is constant in his love. Jesus is transparent. In other words, he was vulnerable. What's more vulnerable than God becoming a babe, than God dying on a cross, than God being naked on a cross, laid bare? What's more transparent than that? God showing all that he is uh, for our salvation, because he loves us. God giving us time. God stepping into time, the timeless one, stepping into time. God 
talking, God communicating and speaking to us, and God touching, again, Jesus becoming a man. One of the most amazing things that really baffled the religious leaders of Jesus' day is that he was not afraid to touch sinners. Not afraid. Something powerful about touch that humanizes people. It pulls them out of the pit of feeling dehumanized as a result of sin or defilement or brokenness. Sin has a tendency to cause us to feel as if we are cast-offs. It's one of the reasons why, perhaps maybe even some of you came here this morning, you're like, I shouldn't really be going. I'm so messed up. I'm not like them. I don't look like them. I don't act like them. I don't think like them. They all sing songs. I don't want to sing songs. They pray. Last thing I want to do is pray because you feel the sense of defilement. And last thing you want to do is to be known by anybody. You don't want to be touched. And that's the very thing we need. For us to stay in our sin is for us to remain dehumanized. For us to allow someone in our lives to touch us like the way God touches us and transforms us actually rehumanizes us and causes us to see that the sin, the defilement, the brokenness that, that we find in our lives that we want to run away from, that Jesus actually takes that upon himself and cleanses us. So this is what we see. So partnership involves covenant, friendship. Finally, uh, in this particular heading, it involves wholeness, involves wholeness and healing. I want you to turn real quick to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. Ezekiel, chapter 16. It's in the Old Testament. It's in this area of uh, major prophets. There are major and minor prophets. The major prophets are called major, not because they're more awesome, but because they wrote really large books, and the minor prophets wrote small books for the most part. That was a total oversimplification right there. But All right, Ezekiel chapter 16. Now, the backstory of this is that God is describing his relationship with his people Israel. And so what you need to know with regard to this in this context is that God actually describes himself as the husband of Israel. And we get books like the book of Hosea that actually describe Israel like God's bride actually has not been faithful to God. So to talk about sort of the concept of reciprocation, um, that God is set or poised because of Israel's infidelity you would, because Israel's turned their back on their husband, uh, the law basically teaches and taught that, you know, if there is infidelity within a relationship, then the spouse that's remained faithful has the ability to divorce. So God's poised to actually divorce the people of Israel because they've been repeatedly uh, disobedient, they've turned their back on God, and so on and so forth. But what uh, Ezekiel basically gives us is this little bit of a window as to how the whole relationship with God began. And so what he does is he tells basically a story. He kind of puts it in the context of, of, a, of a wealthy Middle Eastern man that notices a very poor, impoverished, broken, uh, stricken woman on the side of the street that's worthless, absolutely worthless, and yet God doesn't walk by. God doesn't abandon her. God doesn't pay her for a favor. God says, come to me. In fact, I will purchase you to make you lovely, not to ask favors of you like a prostitute, but to give you something that will give you life. And this is what the book of Ezekiel says. Listen to this carefully. It says in verse um, 8, 
When I passed by you again and I saw you, behold, you were of the age of love, and I spread the corn of my garment over you, and I covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you, and I entered, and entered into a covenant. So therefore God uses covenantal language with you, declares the Lord God, that you became mine. And I bathed you with water, and I washed you with, uh, uh, washed off your blood and from uh, you and anointed you with oil. And I clothed you also with embroidered cloth, and I shod you with fine leather, and I wrapped you in a linen and covered you in, in, with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and with bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and beautiful crown on your head and so on and so forth. And this is, this is all the picture that God is describing. And in verse uh, 3, it finishes with this. It says, And you ate fine flour and honey and oil, and you grew exceedingly beautiful, and you advanced to royalty. And the idea here with regard to partnership involves wholeness and healing. And before I jump in and finish this little section here, um, turn, real, turn real quickly back to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Take a look at verse 26. And there's a really strange verse here that a lot of times scholars and people who read the Bible uh, kind of read this type of stuff. And it sounds really cryptic and strange and foreign. But again, I, I want you to hear the context of it, of what I think Paul is borrowing from. And here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. He describes it like this. I'll pick it up at verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives. Okay, what does love look like? Again, Paul is going to unpack for the husband what love, true love looks like. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. So a lot of people have kind of wondered, like, what does it mean to wash her with water? Well, again, Paul's borrowing language from the book of Ezekiel, and it's the picture of God seeing Israel, this broken, bloodied, ruined. Some have even suspected that it's the picture of a prostitute on the side of the road who's no longer wanted by her pimp. She's been beaten up by her pimp, and she's bloodied and undesirable and unlovely, and yet God walks by and sees her there and says, I want to buy you, not for favors, but I want to buy you so that I can make you in your unloveliness unlovely or fully lovely, so I can make you in your brokenness totally healed, so I can make you in your sense of shame and defilement clean and pure, and I will wash you, and I will cleanse you, and I will robe you, and I will give you everything so that you will flourish in life. This is the picture that God says, when marriage works rightly, in covenant, two people that are bound together, they work through garbage with each other with an aim and a focus, cleansing each other, so that within marriage, when you have two people that fully love each other, and fully know each other. That's healing. Most of us, we live our lives wanting to be loved, but not wanting to be fully known. That's most of us here. We want to be loved. We want somebody to devote themselves to us. We want somebody to care about us. We want somebody to dedicate their energies towards us or the money and their time, their efforts to us. But at the end of the day, we don't want to be fully known. We don't want them to fully know us. Because we are afraid that the moment they find out about our perverted minds or our bad thoughts or our efforts to do something evil or wicked or take advantage of them, or they, they discover who we are. We're afraid. We're fearful of them abandoning us. Anyone ever felt that? The problem with that is 
every relationship that is defined by that is nothing more than superficial. And it has an expiration date on it, and it will last very briefly. And when it stops and it breaks, you will break with it. All of us want to be loved, but we're always afraid of being found out. Our greatest fear, though, on the, uh, on the other hand, is being found out. Because we're afraid the moment we're found out, we're going to be abandoned. But what marriage is, the ultimate marriage, God says, I know everything there is about you. Everything there is to be known about you. Every defiling act you've ever done. Every defiling act that's been done against you. Every violation you've committed. Every form of violation that's been committed to you no matter how filthy, defiled, broken, ruined, oppressed you are, I know it. And yet I still love you. And I still devote myself to you. That's the union that God brings about in the ultimate marriage. That is what marriage, in a human sense, has the ability to bring about in terms of healing on a human level. So I want to finish with this. And two final things, and talk about procreation, because the first thing I talked about, obviously, was partnership, second of which we'll take a look at is procreation. Procreation involves two things. We'll go through this very quickly. One involves sex to enjoy, that really what God has in store for marriage is that it involves sex to enjoy. And what has happened oftentimes within a church is that the church has not known what to do with sex, and so therefore, as a result, it never gets talked about, or sometimes it gets talked about in a way in which it becomes crass. And the reality is that it's something that God created. It was intended to bring great delight to couples in the covenantal relationship. It was always intended to be a complete immersion of your whole self into each other. Not just physical, but emotional and spiritual. All together, all wrapped in one. It's one of the reasons why C.S. Lewis describes um, sex sexual encounters that are devoid of or divorced from actual long-standing relationships is like eating food but regurgitating it. It may taste really good. It may be awesome, but at some point you swallow it and yet you throw it back up and you never get the nourishment. You might get the flavor of it. It may taste really good for a season, but you throw it back up, but you never get nourished. And at some point you keep on that habit and that pattern, you will die from malnourishment and the same is true of sex, is what C.S. Lewis describes, is that sex was intended by God to engage in covenantal relationship, both or all, body, soul, and spirit. And what that does is that builds friendship, and friendship builds the sexual encounter and relationship so that it becomes an absolutely unifying, beautiful, unifying form of relationship. And that ultimately could lead to uh, what we describe as a family to cultivate. And God created it so that, so that as Man was called by God. I'll read Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God says this, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and then he gave to them. He said, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. That God says, uh, I'm putting you in this garden. It's a great garden. It's awesome. It's paradise. But I want this whole earth to become like this garden. And so for this whole earth to become like this garden paradise... I'm calling you, asking you to take that job of cultivating this whole earth. And you're going to need an army of people. So, which means you're going to have to have families and kids and families of families to help you in this project of 
filling the earth with the beauty, the glory, the goodness, the life, the flourishing of God. And obviously we know what happened was sin entered in the world. And rather than Adam and Eve following God, they basically turned their back on God. And in other words, that which is who is in the story basically turned to the author and says no. In a lot of ways, it would be kind of like, uh, you know, Frodo looking at J.R. Tolkien, if that was even possible, and saying, no, 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 I, I think there's a way to have peaceful coexistence with the ring. Right? That resonated with, like, with a couple of you, right? The rest of you are like, it's Lord of the Rings. Um, sorry. But the point of the matter is, is that you can't. Like, like, Tolkien wrote the story, and for the story to work, to function well, to be beautiful, to sing the way it sings to resonate the way it resonates with us as human beings, the players need to play their part. And for them to buck the system, for them to turn against the author, actually brings about brokenness. It brings about turning in on itself. And what we see is that that's what happened with the people in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve turned against God, and everything began to break apart and fall apart. So I want to finish with kind of, just sort of uh, an observation, uh, implication of marriage. That if in reality, if really the, pen, the marriage uh, in, in playing really the penultimate purpose, um, in other words, a support purpose to the ultimate purpose, then I think what that means is that because God's ultimate plan for marriage involves this faithful, God will be faithful, union, whereby he unites himself with one bride, called the church, who is entirely other, different than himself. Human beings, again, we are not gods, and yet God chooses non-gods, human beings, image bearers, to be his bride. Then what that means is really fidelity, monogamy, matter. It's something that's important to God. It's something that God looks at and says, this is how the story brings about flourishing, to rewrite that story, to interject any other story into that story is not adding music that brings about harmony. It actually brings about non-music that brings about brokenness and dissonance and not life. So in short, what I think this means is that so if the penultimate purpose of human marriage is to point to the ultimate purpose of God's marriage or union, then that would mean that polygamy infidelity, it would mean that homosexual union, which is union of same sexes as opposed to other sexes, the way we see patterned in God, uniting himself with others called human beings, and the way that Adam was male, was united with female, his other, then to unite sameness actually breaks from the traditional system. The picture, the image, the ultimate purpose. Friends with benefits, one night stands, casual sex, yada, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All are forms of vandalism on the ultimate purpose. And will not in the end lead to flourishing that God intends for us. God intends for you. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I think most of us can look around this world and say that we have seen a lot of brokenness. Maybe some of you have lived that brokenness. God has a lot to say about what marriage and union look like that leads to wholeness. 
lot of us, finish with this thought, try to look for things to determine our lives, and we base it upon what is right or wrong. I want to suggest to you, don't start with asking the question, what is right or wrong? Because at the end of the day, the overriding question that you should start with is what brings life and what brings death? What brings flourishing? What is it that God says this is what leads to life? What is that which brings ultimate sense of satisfaction in your life in the long run, not in the short term? That's a problem. We are, as C.S. Lewis described it, we are like children in a slum so happy to simply make mud pies when that little child was offered a vacation to go to sea on a ship with a menu filled with all sorts of free items to eat and feast on. He says we are far too easily satisfied with the here and now and what's here. That, he basically anchors all that by saying our desires, what we truly long for, are too easily satisfied. We give in for mud pies when something absolutely extravagant and life-giving and soul-satisfying is offered to us. This is what God offers to all of us. So for us to enter into that, for us to simply say, God, I'll follow your story. I want to do what you call us to do and to live according to what you call us to so that it would lead about a life of flourishing, not languishing. And that's what I want to invite you in here right now. So we're going to sing. We're going to finish. I want to invite you guys all to stand. We're going to have the guys come up, and they're going to close us in a song. And I want to invite you, if you're here this morning, especially if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to come to trust Jesus who vows to heal you. Not necessarily in this moment, in this time. He may. If there's certain circumstances that are going through in your life, we want to pray for you. We're going to have some people off to the side available to pray for you. Jesus may want to heal you right now. May have, maybe of sickness or disease or broken hardness or addictions that you may have. He wants to heal you. But in an ultimate sense, in an ultimate sense, to bring about healing and restoration. So we'll partake of communion. We'll sing. I just want to invite you into this story that God calls us to that ultimately leads to flourishing, that will ultimately end in what Paul describes as the healing of this earth. That's what we want. So when we look around the world, we find ourselves filled with anxiety because we're like, this earth is sick. It is broken. It's, it's a toxic environment. Things are not good. Some of you may look at your marriages or relationships or past relationships that you've been involved in maybe by your parents and you're like it's toxic it's broken Jesus offers to bring healing turn your life your story over to God and say God let my life be in accordance to your story that takes faith that takes you being vulnerable and being vulnerable to somebody anybody is one of the most frightening things you will ever be asked to do. Because the question that we always wrestle with is, what if they will hurt me? (laughs) What if they get information about me and they misuse that information against me and they crush me? Here's the good news. Jesus will never, ever, 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 ever do that because he was crushed for you. He was oppressed 
for you so that all of the oppression, all of the crushing that you experience in this life, he will actually turn it around into healing and restoration and give you a life back so that you can be your true self in him. That you can be spared the judgment, the brokenness, the pain that you feel, that you sense right now and for eternity. That's what God calls us to. I'm going to pray. We'll sing. If you're here and you got kids, uh, you know, typically we try to encourage you like, right down and went a little bit over. Um, you're more than welcome to pick up your kids and bring them back in here, but make sure they relieve the children's ministry workers. But let's pray. Let's sing. Let's finish. Let's partake of communion. Let's confess our sin to God. Let's pray for one another if those are things that you need to deal with in your life. God, thank you that we can come to you, cast our cares upon you, simply because you care for us.